You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Good morning, everybody. Mother's Day 2020, 10th of May today. And uh, we've been looking the last few weeks over the story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. And it's a story full of surprises. And uh, as I study this, I actually find more and more things in this that surprise me. But it's remarkable, this story, both in the contrasts and the similarities to the story of Jesus meeting with Nicodemus in the previous chapter in John 3. Um, They were both from opposite ends of the social spectrum and uh, from competing religions and with very different senses of their own importance in the world. And yet, their deepest needs were no different. So we'll pick up the story in verse 13. If you've got your Bibles with you, please open them up to John chapter 4, starting at verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water bubbling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. But what's the connection, I wonder, between the woman's thirst and her marital history? The story flows from Jesus talking to her about living water to quench her thirst into him talking to her about her marital history. Is there any connection between the two? It's not obvious on a surface reading of the text. But I think there is a connection. Jesus has just stirred in this woman a recognition that her physical thirst and her inability to quench it long term is in fact illustrating a much deeper thirst. 
one that she hasn't understood, but she's been trying to satisfy nonetheless. I think Jesus has deliberately pinpointed her marital history so that she'll begin to understand that her inability to keep a husband is not the problem, but it's just a symptom of what's going on inside her. Traditionally, people have read this passage and understood this woman to be a person of loose morals. The general assumption is that she has had five husbands and is now living with a man she's not married to because she's promiscuous. Every commentary I've read assumes the same thing. If the commentaries are correct, then she would be an outcast in her own village. She would be the one that so-called good people look down on with contempt and the other women don't trust. I can picture her sneaking through the village in shame, eyes down, scarf covering her head, hoping no one notices her, while they all point at her and whisper behind their hands. One commentator says, one of the reasons she was not so popular with the women of the town was because she was too popular with the men of the town. But maybe she's been judged harshly by the commentaries. Maybe she was not a loose woman at all. We can't be sure. We can only go by the hints in the text and an understanding of the times. I've only come across one author who doesn't believe that she was sexually immoral. We've been watching a fascinating DVD series for Connect Group entitled Who Is This Man? The Unpredictable Impact of the Inescapable Jesus, presented by John Ortberg. He thinks that she's been misrepresented for centuries, and he makes a few interesting points. One of his points is that when the woman went back to the village to tell about this man, they took her seriously enough to come and see for themselves. He believes that that means she had at least enough respect in the community that the neighbours would listen to her. It's a reasonable point, one that I hadn't considered or heard before for that matter, but I'm not convinced. John Ortberg also points out that divorce was quite rare in ancient cultures, and women were not able to initiate a divorce, so five divorces is unlikely. So maybe she was just unlucky. Maybe it had nothing to do with her morals at all. Maybe all five husbands had died, leaving her alone and desperate. After all, life could be short and brutal in those times. If all her husbands had died of natural causes or died of accidents or violence, I can picture her walking through the village with her head hung low, her shoulders slumped, a black cloud of gloom and maybe even guilt hanging over her constantly. It's not uncommon for people to feel guilty when they survive their partner. Imagine the constant guilt you'd be carrying around having survived five husbands. While the villagers may not then despise her, they probably don't welcome her either. She wouldn't be the life of the party. Now even by the, even the strictest Pharisees considered divorce and remarriage acceptable. But regardless of the circumstances, more than three marriages was frowned upon. And this woman has had five marriages, and she's now living in sin. Now we can't be sure of her circumstances, but we do know 
but a single adult woman rarely had any form of income or protection in those days. Once she had left her father's home, she was on her, on her own. If she wasn't married, she had to find someone to take her in. Otherwise, her life consisted of begging or prostitution to survive. This woman's string of husbands and her current living arrangements may have been simply a matter of survival for her. Whatever the truth about her morals or lack of morals, she's been rejected or abandoned by a string of men. If it's true that they all died, she must have gained a reputation as the Black Widow. Maybe that's why her current man hasn't married her. Maybe he wants what he can get from her, but he's not prepared to risk his life by marrying her. This, of course, is all conjecture, but I don't think it's conjecture to suggest that she would at the very least be emotionally scarred by her history. Life has beaten her down. Her trip to the well alone in the heat of the noonday sun suggests that she was an outcast, a woman that few people want to associate with. And remember, women in ancient cultures were second-class citizens. With rare exceptions, they were uneducated and illiterate. It was considered a waste of a man's valuable time to teach his wife or his daughter. And it was socially unacceptable for a man to speak to a woman publicly, even to his wife. Which just goes to make this story all the more remarkable. This Jewish rabbi goes out of his way to speak to a Samaritan woman with an, a questionable past. That's unheard of. But isn't that just the heart of Jesus? Friend of sinners, lifter up of the downcast, Defender of the mistreated, liberator of the oppressed. His heart went out to the poor, the lost, the hurting, the broken, and cultural conventions were not going to get in his way. There was no prejudice in Jesus against women, against people of another race, or against anyone else for that matter. He saw the person. He saw the real person. He saw the inner person. And he valued them, each and every one of them. Jesus treated people with dignity and respect and honour. And he laid the foundation for his followers to do the same, opening up the possibility, opening up the expectation that women down through the ages should be treated the same way. Just in case you didn't realise it, that's why girls in modern Western societies are given an education. It's thanks to this man. It's why women can have jobs and travel and go out in public on their own. It's why domestic violence is now a criminal act instead of the accepted way of controlling your wife or your child. It's why the modern feminist movement could even exist. If Jesus didn't treat women with respect and dignity and value back then, women would still be illiterate, the property of their father or their husband, totally dependent on them for survival, and expected to churn out babies on demand, as they still are in many cultures that haven't been shaped by the message of the Bible.
So don't for a moment be sucked in by the accusation that Jesus Christ and Christianity are sexist and oppressive of women. We Christians haven't always done the best job of representing Christ well in the way we treat women. But Jesus Christ is the reason why women have freedom today. Jesus, by his treatment of women, laid the foundation for the liberty that women have today. Now when we read the Gospels, we see Jesus always welcoming the broken, the hurting, the abused, the rejected. Whether it was Zacchaeus, the despised tax collector who climbed a tree to get a glimpse of him, or the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, whether it was lepers rejected by society, or the woman caught in adultery, Jesus welcomed them with open arms. And he didn't just do it once or twice for effect. He did it all the time. The criticism of the religious establishment about him was, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They used it like a knife to stab him. Friend of sinners. I digress to make the point that that Jesus' heart was for the hurting. He didn't care about gender. He didn't care about education or wealth or fame or social status. He cared about need. It's one of the reasons why he cares about us today. This woman at the well had a need, an emptiness, a thirst that she didn't understand. And her serial monogamy was the manifestation of that thirst. But Jesus was offering her an escape from that bondage. I wonder in what ways our inner thirst may be manifesting itself. In what areas of our life are we looking elsewhere to quench our thirst rather than to the fountain of living water? What are we in bondage to because we're trying to drink from the wrong water source? Now let's be careful not to confuse the open arms that Jesus had for tax collectors and sinners with him turning a blind eye to their sin. He welcomed sinners But he also told them, go and sin no more, so that something worse doesn't happen to you. When Jesus met with the woman at the well, he identified her sin. Not so much because she was living in sin, but because her sin was a manifestation of a deeper problem. She was looking for happiness in all the wrong places. She was seeking satisfaction for her deep inner thirst at the wrong well. She was seeking it in relationships. She was looking for a man to provide her with meaning and value and respect. And we all know, at least in our more rational moments, that we can't find deep and lasting satisfaction from other human beings. Rather, we need to look to God for meaning. She needed to look to God for meaning. She needed to seek to quench her thirst from the source of living water. Jesus said to her in verse 16, Go and call your husband and come here. A seemingly casual request, but it puts her on the spot. Now she has to face up publicly to her sin. 
but soon becomes obvious to her that this man already knows her sin and her situation. So that opens her up to this man who knows everything about her. This man surprised her by knowing all about her current sinful living arrangements. And then this Jewish rabbi, this holy man, invites her to come back, even though he knows she's a sinner. What kind of man is he? He speaks to her as an equal, as someone of worth and someone of intelligence, as a real person with her own identity. He doesn't look down on her because she's a woman. He doesn't despise her because she's a Samaritan. He doesn't ignore her because she's uneducated. He doesn't condemn her for her past or for her sin. What kind of man is he? It turns out that he is more than just a Jew. Turns out that turns out that he is greater than our father Jacob. She reveals her growing understanding of who this man is by saying, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She's gradually becoming aware that Jesus is someone special. It won't be long before she makes a fourth declaration about this man. Soon she'll be hurrying back to her village to tell everyone to come meet this man. Can this be the Christ, the Messiah? Can this be the one we've been waiting for all these centuries? Now this man has an uncanny ability to get under your skin, to put his finger on your failings, to expose your sin, and to change your thinking about yourself and about him and about everything else. And he usually does it in quiet ways, in subtle ways often in ways that are easy to miss in the hustle and bustle of daily life. Notice how gently and graciously he comes to her, identifying her need and uncovering her sin and revealing himself to her little by little. And the biggest and the best revelation about himself is still yet to come in the story. Let me tell you something else remarkable about this encounter. This is the longest conversation that Jesus has with a single person anywhere in the Gospels. He spends more time talking to this woman, this Samaritan woman with a questionable past, than to any other individual. We've already compared her, compared her to Nicodemus when we came to the start of chapter 4, the differences could hardly be more extreme. Jesus, the great teacher, spoke to Nicodemus, the highly trained teacher of Israel, about deep, deep things, about things even the educated Nicodemus struggled to grasp. But then he comes to this uneducated, illiterate woman of Samaria, and he speaks to her about things that are just as deep, maybe even deeper. And he reveals things to her that he has told no one else to date. In fact, he reveals to this woman who he really is. 
you'd remember the story of when Moses first encounters God in Exodus chapter 3. When Moses asks God what his name is, God replies, I am who I am. Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Say to this people that Yahweh, or you might know it as Jehovah, has sent me to you. Jesus will soon tell this woman that he is the great I am. She will be the first person to hear Jesus claim to be God. Just before the disciples return in verse 26, he says to her, I who speak to you am he. Now most English translations don't really do justice to what Jesus is saying here, but she understands him. What Jesus really says is, I who speak to you, I am. I am Yahweh. Jesus here claims to be God himself. He claims to be the one who spoke to Moses back in Exodus. No wonder this man knows so much about her. No wonder she goes away excited and energised to tell people about him. You know, Jesus has told no one this piece of information so far. This claim to be God will be will one day get him killed. But for now, he's pleased to sh- share this profound truth with a woman, a Samaritan, a sinner. Incidentally, this is the only time that deep and profound truths are, re- are revealed to a woman first. One day, not too far into the future, an angel will entrust a few women with the most amazing piece of information. Very early one Sunday morning, an angel tells three women, He is not here, for he has risen. Go and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. There's been a slow dawning on this woman this, that this man is more so much more than he appears to be and his approach to her has been non-threatening and non-judgmental right from the start in fact he begins with a simple request for help a drink of water and he uses that to find common ground and begin to bring her defences down she is not yet completely open with him of course she only gave him part of the story when he mentioned her husband but as we get further into the story we'll see her try to change the subject as if the scrutiny on her personal life is uncomfortable but Jesus uses this opportunity to confront her with her sin he has to there is no way the salvation without acknowledging our state of sin and rebellion before the Lord. When the people cried out in Acts chapter 2, what must we do to be saved? Peter's reply was, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament prophets came with a message of repent and turn from your idolatry. John the Baptist came preaching, Repent from your sins. And Jesus said, 
unless you repent, you will all perish as well. It's not a comfortable message. It's not a message we want to hear. But it's a message we need to hear if we're going to be rescued. This woman got the message. As uncomfortable as it may have felt to be exposed by this stranger, she got the message. It's been a slow awakening for her to the truth of who this man is. But it's a genuine awakening. In the book of Acts, when the people cry out, what must we do to be saved? They are suddenly and dramatically converted. But for this woman, it's much quieter. It's much more subtle. As it is for many of us. Many of us can't point to the precise moment in our lives when we were saved. I suspect this woman couldn't point to the precise moment when she believed either. But her salvation is no less genuine just because it is quiet. The evidence of her salvation is her response following this encounter. She becomes the first mass evangelist. Jesus is the master at getting behind our masks and under our defences. He knows her need. He knows what is going on inside her. He knows her past. He knows her present. He knows her thoughts. He knows her pain. And he says to her, Come. He knows yours too. If it were an option, what are some of the things you would prefer that God didn't know about you? You know it's futile to try to hide them from him, don't you? He already knows them. And still he says, come. When Jesus exposed her sin, he did it to prepare her to receive his gift. He did it to reveal the character of the one offering the gift. No sin is too bad to undermine his offer of rescue. And no sin is too great that he can't wash it away. When he exposes your sin, it's not for the purpose of making you feel bad. It's for the purpose of restoration and healing. You don't need to hide from him anymore. You don't need to pretend. And you can't clean up your life for him. All secrets are already out before him. Nothing in all creation is hidden from the sight of God, it tells us in Hebrews 4.13. He invites you to come. Come to him for living water that not only refresh, refreshes the tired and thirsty soul, but cleanses all the dirt you've been collecting all these years. There never has been a better message to hear, especially if you're one of the outcasts, the misfits, the rejects, the poor, the hurting, the lonely. Come. And it's not just the outcasts and the lonely he seeks. The rich, the educated, the famous, the comfortable, the secure, he calls you to come to. For you need what he offers no less than the Samaritan woman did. He has not yet turned away 
any who come to him for rest. And he won't start now. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, your heart for the lost, the lonely, the hurting, the misfits and the rejects shines through on every page of the Gospels. And it shines through in the gentle way you relate to this woman at the well. You truly do know how to get to the heart of the matter, to the heart of our pursuit of poor substitutes that we seek out to satisfy our inner thirst when what we really need is you. Lord, we marvel that you would go out of your way to meet with this woman who was most likely an outcast in her own town. And we marvel that you would treat her so gently, so respectfully, with such dignity, even though she's living in sin and you are the Holy One of Israel. And we marvel that you would so gently expose her sin, not to condemn, but to bring healing and freedom and peace. Lord, we ask you to come to us also to expose the things that we've been looking to for satisfaction when we should have been asking you instead. And Lord, we come to you for cleansing and we come to you to have our thirst satisfied. We want to be free of the bondage we're in, Lord, so we ask that you wash us clean. And we pray, Lord, that you would meet with our family and our friends by the side of their wells to bring them to the knowledge and understanding that you and you alone are able to satisfy that deep inner thirst in them. And we pray this on their behalf and in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.